Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, October 1st. On today's show, we are joined by Cracked Rackets returning champion, pro tennis coach, tennis channel contributor, friend of the program, Mark Lucero, to discuss this week's action happening in San Diego. Of course, as a longtime member of the California tennis community, perhaps no one is better situated than Mark to discuss the significance of the return of pro tennis to the San Diego tennis community. We also discuss the rise of other inaugural events throughout the United States, the action happening in Chicago, the action in Cleveland, the action coming up this February in Dallas. We talk about what allows these sorts of events to uh, come to existence across the United States, why it's such good news for American tennis fans. Of course, we also talk a bit at the end about Indian Wells, the protocols surrounding the event for fans, whether we think there will be similar protocols enacted at other events throughout the 2022 season. It is a fascinating conversation that I know all of you listeners are going Going to enjoy, of course, before we get to it quickly. Just want to thank all of you listeners, our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, our friends at Tennis Point for the support in making these podcasts possible. Go to tennis-point.com right now. Use the promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. So grateful for their, their support. The least we can do, ask you to support them as well. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get to it. Here is my conversation with pro tennis coach Mark Lucero. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on the podcast today, a returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows. You know him as the spokesperson for the Larry Elder recall campaign. You also know him as the host of Check the Mark, of course, professional tennis coach, tennis channel contributor, and of course, our friend, Mark Lucero. Mark, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I wish I knew of a campaign to recall Larry Alder. I'd uh, sign up for it uh, get the first chance I got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. I I knew you'd appreciate that. When I'm, uh, You're one of the few guys I feel like I can really go for it. I almost said this is a man who chooses to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. But I was like, ah, it's probably a little too much. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, no, it is always a pleasure to be joined by you, Coach. And, obviously, I know it's been busy times for you on the road. Uh, all is well with you all is well with the little one yeah all is well i mean it's great to have a little california swing right now 
Yeah, I imagine it's got to be fun, especially no Indian Wells earlier this year. And now the introduction of San Diego, which is, of course, what I want to talk with you about today. But I I mean, it does. I mean, the California tennis community is real. And I guess let's just get right into it because you look at the crowd and you can date back to opening night on Monday. It's a first round for a 250. Taylor Fritz, Brandon Nakashima, essentially sold out crowds. And of course, you look even in qualifying for August Holmgren, the San Diego senior, the crowds that came out for that. The San Diego community is ready for pro tennis. Yeah, listen, they didn't have free qualifying. Like Qualifying was a ticketed uh, you know, couple of days, and they sold like well over a thousand seats both days, which is, you know, I think just indicative of the, you know, the appetite for pro tennis in San Diego. You know, when I grew up, there was a women's tournament. Uh, it was first at San Antonio Rack Club, then it got moved to La Costa. And this event, like when I was in, you know, seventh eighth grade in high school, it was a sellout. Like every session sold out Monday through Sunday. It was a, you know, it was a premier level women's event. It was doing great until they sold the sanction. Uh, after they sold the sanction, you know, the tournament left, and they tried to bring it back a couple of years later, and it just was never the same. You know, it's tough in any sport when you kind of burn a, a loyal fan base. But enough time has passed now, and yeah, the the passion for pro tennis in San Diego is pretty strong. You know, you have kind of the Pied Piper of the community, Ryan Redondo, who <laughs> you know runs the Barn Center and really, did, really, really did a huge job with the outreach in San Diego to get the community kind of behind it. Um, you know, some money guys like Bill Kellogg and Jack McGrory. And then, you know, obviously Danny Valverde was instrumental in, you know, in making the event happen um, along with Ryan. So, you know, you don't have good events without leadership. And, and you know, I, as a, as a, you know, as a native San Diegan, I'm really you know, grateful that these guys all sort of joined forces and brought an event to my hometown. So that's what it is. It's San Diegan, just for clarity. Yeah, San Diegan. I don't know any other, you know, any yeah. other plural of, but, uh, yeah, good. No, because I know it's Michigander, Michiganian. I don't really care. I'm from Michigan. That's all that matters. But it's good to know San Diegan. And, yeah, I feel like one of the cool things about getting to do this over the past few years, Ryan Redondo is one of those guys, one of those power brokers in the tennis world who has been able to bring tennis back to the San Diego community. And I'm curious, even beyond San Diego, it's been pretty cool this summer. A bunch of different WTA events in Chicago. We got to see Cleveland have an event. We got to see um, blanking. I, I I don't think San Jose was new, but obviously we've seen San Jose emerge and just so many different Charleston cities. Charleston took on Char- a couple more events. And Dallas is coming next yep. year in February as well. What do you think of this expanded map of you know professional events in the United States? And again, I, I know in the past there used to be events in Indy. There used to be events in different cities. Is this just a return to normalcy? Well, I think a couple things. One, I think when you talk about mid-sized markets, I think mid-sized markets like a like a Cleveland, like a, you know even a Charleston, I think there's a real appetite there for for pro sports. You know, these communities that maybe don't have a, a ton of of pro sports teams, even though Cleveland obviously has you know major sports teams and you know in baseball, football, and basketball. But I, I think that, and then I think when you talk about the, like a larger city like a San Diego, you know, like a Dallas. It's all about finding these pockets. You got to find like the community and like the location within that big city that will come out and support it. Because if you, you know, if you look at like in LA in the past, like they tried to have an event, you know, in Carson or even the Staples Center event. If you go to just a big venue, you're going to be out of luck. You need to find an area that'll that'll get behind it, like an area with a like a club type atmosphere or you know a membership type atmosphere that'll support whatever your you know your charismatic leader will bring to the will bring to that club or to that venue or to that facility and 
you know, in San Diego, obviously Ryan Redondo has a lot of sway over the community because of the goodwill he's generated. You know, in Dallas, you have obviously there's like, like a Grant Chen behind the scenes. There's, you know, John Isner who, you know, has a he has deep ties in the Dallas community. There's guys, guys like that who have been instrumental in bringing these events and making sure even before the first balls hit that the events are going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Of course, Sam Duvall over in Cleveland, Kamal Murray over in Absolutely. Chicago. You can point to all of these different people as, again, influential figures in helping to get pro tennis back here. I, I don't think people realize under the brand new uh, – the lake in front of the brand new Rams facility are actually 12 indoor courts, and they're going to put the L.A. event there. They're just like, screw it, throw it into the Inglewood Park. We're doing it all anyways. Um, but no, it's just – it's really nice to see, and especially in a year where there just haven't been that many challenger events in the United States for various different reasons, it's great to be able to see uh, different communities, different uh, places be able to commit to professional tennis in the immediate future. And of course, again, this week we have San Diego on the eve of Indian Wells, which of course I think starts next Thursday. I'm curious what you think about that as well. The 250, the week before the Masters event, I know in the new ATP strategic plan they talk about having atp 250 events held the second week of masters events it's just good to see the availability and i think that speaks to the fact we have rublev schwartzman shapovalov rude obviously andy murray cam nori all playing this week in san diego i like this strategy i like this scheduling what do you think yeah i think it's great i mean it makes sense obviously for them to have a place to go particularly you know after the u.s open after the guys who went to labor cup to you know to be able to put something in their calendar and have another chance to compete especially in a season where you know a big part of the calendar was you know was crossed off like the asia swing where a lot of players will you know or would have gone in the past so yeah i think it was a no-brainer and you know obviously having some people who are nimble who were willing to kind of snap up the opportunity to host events especially as the tours were kind of shopping these one-off sanctions you know it's it's easier for someone you know, like a Danny Velverdu or, or Ryan Redondo or, or a Sam Duvall or Kamau or whoever, it's easier for these guys to pull things together in a short amount of time than it is for maybe, you know, for maybe a federation who's got to, you know, have some bigger gears that are a little slower to turn yeah. when no. time's of the essence. Yeah, no doubt about that. And I think it's just been great again to see the tennis unfold. And uh, it is interesting. Where are they going to – so if it's the Indian Wells second week, does that go to Arizona? Is that going to be Phoenix? Is that going to be Vegas? What? How exactly does it work out? It's unclear to me. In the future? Yeah. Is that what they're hoping to do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think they're – you know, early in the year – when they were talking about what an Indian, like what a normal Indian Wells would look like, yeah, there were talks of a, of a couple, you know, of all those cities you mentioned <laughs> hosting, you know, a possible second week, and and now, in theory, with how San Diego's looked, I mean, I would I would have to argue that San Diego has put itself in the conversation to have, you know, to, to have an event, and you know, if it's not a 125, to have a you know a full 250 in the future. Mm-hmm. No, I mean that would be ideal and. It just feels like, given the success of the San Diego event, yes, I don't think this is going to be a one-off. I think we can expect to see more events there in the future. And with that in mind, I do want to pick your brain about some of the performances we've seen thus far at this event. We're talking here Friday afternoon, quarterfinal Friday. Uh, Of course, I think we've already seen Cam Nori knock off Shapovalov in straight sets, Rublev and Schwartzman on the court as we are speaking 
But I do want to talk about Cam Norrie because obviously that's a guy near and dear to our hearts here at Crack Rackets. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, at one point, I always like to remind listeners of this fact, was committed to the University of Michigan. Thus, in my head, he'll always be a Wolverine. But of course, goes off to TCU and becomes the number one player in the nation, becomes an All-American, ends up turning pro, is now, I believe, in his fourth year of traveling pro uh, full-time He's made nine quarterfinals this year, Coach. He's made six semifinals now with his victory over Shapovalov. He's 15th in the points race, which, if we're being honest, is probably the most legitimate of all of the rankings metrics out there. 40 wins this year for Cam Norrie. 40 wins. He's winning about 70% of his matches. Uh, There's just an ease to his game. I mean, I'll get into the metrics momentarily, but... What do you think's clicked for him? What, what What's working for him? Because he's not a guy who, when you watch, you just see these massive weapons, right? It's much more nuanced than that. Well, there, there are so many things that, that go into that. And you see generally over players' careers, there's kind of like this arc. And there's, you know, the opening act where, you know, they'll pick off some good wins and they might struggle week to week. They'll pop up, you know, pop a good event once in a while. You know, and as they get into like the meat of their career, particularly if they're, you know, continuing to, to develop and continuing to make a move in their career, you get to this point where you see the consistency from week to week, the, you know, the mental ease of knowing that, you know, knowing that you belong, knowing that you can compete, you know, as high as the levels go in, in professional tennis. And it seems like that's the point where, you know, where he's gone to really professionalizing his, you know, his operation and having obviously not only his coach, but, you know, having a physio that goes with him, taking care of his body, obviously scheduling right, making sure, you know, he's getting his training weeks in when he, you know, he goes back to Fort Worth. And, and yeah, really having that, like, the consistency and then the confidence, it's it's like this never-ending cycle. You know, the, the more consistency week to week leads to more confidence, more confidence leads to, you know, even more consistency and better results. Like the consistency moving from, you know, routine quarterfinals to routine semifinals to, to whatever it is after that. And that's, you know, that's honestly how you, that's how you make moves with the rankings by winning matches year round and putting yourself in a position, you know, to be successful and to play for the big points at the end of the week. No doubt about that. I call it the two thirds rule. And I think the math usually checks out on this. When you're winning two thirds of your matches at any given level, you're going to start to move up. When it's two thirds of your challengers, you're making quarterfinals routinely, mixing off a first round loss with a run to a final or winning a title, you'll probably move up to right around the top 100. You're starting to get into ATP 250 qualies. And then once you start doing that same number, two thirds at the 250 level, that's when you get towards the top 50. And I just, you know, all the numbers for Cam Nori. Obviously, he's at that 70% mark. That's why he's a little bit higher. That's why he's approaching the top 25 of the rankings. I mean, his results have been consistent, and it's been on hard courts. It's been on clay courts. It's been on grass courts. He's one of 11 players to rank top 28 in both hold and break percentage. And I know that's an arbitrary number, 28. Why go with that? But that's where he fits in. He's 28th in hold percentage, 8th in break percentage. And again, it. It, it's so interesting, and I think with the rise of Nori and the rise of a guy like Brooksby, high percentage tennis is back. And I've gotten to this argument a million times with different people. I'm curious where you sit in this debate. 
there are people who have run the metrics who say first serve percentage does not matter. First serve win percentage does matter. But, I mean, obviously the extremes matter. If you're making fewer than 50% of your first serves, if you're making over 75% of your first serves, those matter. But, you know, anywhere else in that range, it's really not that statistically significant. I just disagree. Like, I, I think it's I call it death by a thousand paper cups. I'm throwing a lot of metaphors at you. I apologize for that. But it's just <laughs> this idea that for Cam Norty, he wears you down. And even when you know, and as the king of minute clinic, I think his slice serve out wide, that lefty slice serve, put that in a minute clinic. Show that to juniors everywhere because that thing is just textbook excellence. But he really just does wear you down with percentage tennis over time. And I think there's a role for that. Now, my original question to you was, I mean, does first serve percentage matter to you? Like, is it statistically significant for you? For sure it is. But the, the fact of the matter, like beyond that, is the way that players who don't have overwhelming serves, how they can back it up, you know, in the rally with the first couple balls, how they back it up again, the following point. And, and someone like you mentioned, a, a Brooksby and a Cam Norrie, these guys are just relentless competitors who – make a lot of balls who don't hit themselves out of matches and who find ways to, hey, frankly, to annoy a lot of players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, a- absolutely. And um, I just think it's funny. You talk about a guy who places the serve so well. I was had this discussion because this is what I do. I think Yannick Hoffman's kick serve might be the best kick serve on tour. I mean, you've seen that thing. The way he's able to create angle out wide and the way he serves and volleys on a clay court, it's just kind of different than the the looks the majority of players will throw at you. And I think for Nori, it's just so similar. The way he slides that ball away from you on the ad side or into your body on the do side, the way he hits his spots, follows those spots. I think he's been, again, exceptional across the board this year. And I'm I'm curious for him now, you know, 26 years old. What do you see in terms of, again, a ceiling? Because he doesn't have that overwhelming weapon at the same time in terms of minimizing your weaknesses. Cam Norrie's done a really good job of doing that. Yeah, and you kind of get to the stage. I mean, obviously, he's he's been able to beef up his game. I think that was one of the more noticeable things this year was just having a little more a little more pop on the ball, being able to to hurt players from you know neutral or uh, you know behind the baseline type situations. But the like the next challenge becomes can you start to make runs in the big tournaments like the the very big like the grand slams the masters 1000s because the points are so much more in those events and that's how like you know you get to a certain point you know in the rankings where you you can't you know you're not going to make any more big jumps based on how you do in 250s or even 500s you need to start winning rounds in the masters and the grand slams especially later in the tournament just because the points are, are essentially exponential in these events and that means you know it means beating the big dogs mm-hmm. no doubt about that again two-thirds rule applies to the masters as well that's when you get to the top 10 it it carries all the way along um but that's no, when your I, bank account starts getting extra zeros on the end yeah exactly that's when you, you know that's when you don't worry about what round you make because the appearance fee was so nice entering the event you're like yeah don't worry about it I, i'm fine um, but when you talk about, you know, again, a guy who maybe on the flip side of that, it takes two seconds of watching him play his best tennis to think, oh, man, this guy is exceptional. And it's Andre Rublev, obviously, the top seed. He's going to, you know, he's very, very comfortably in a position he will likely qualify for the year-end finals. It was a down year for him at the majors, but 
you know, watching that match against Nakashima in the first round of this event, oh my god. Like, it just felt like every ball he hit was going to be for a winner. And I know sometimes, I don't want to say, it's not one-dimensional, but it's one speed. You know what you're getting when you play Andre Rublev. I guess the question is, is that speed good enough? And you're not going to know until you see it unfold at a major. But I, I'm curious where you are on Rublev this season. I There was this discussion, you know, they were calling it a small, what was it, a small four with uh, the, when it was Rublev, Medvedev, Zverev, and Tsitsipas. I don't think that's the terminology. I say it's a key three. I think Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev, probably just a step ahead of the rest of the crew. But I mean, when you watch Rublev play his best tennis, especially on a hard court, it's it's really fun. It's, it is fun to watch. You know, I was hitting indoors at the U.S. Open this year, and he was hitting with his coach, and just the sound coming off the court was, you know, especially when he was taking a whack at the ball, the sound, you know, you can imagine what it sounds like indoors when he's hitting in a, in a small indoor center. And, uh, yeah, it's just it's super fun to watch. And, you know, the way he was hitting the ball against Brandon Nakashima and, you know, that first round, uh, or, you know, the first round match for Rublev, his first match of the tournament. Well, yeah, just a pretty <laughs> – it's pretty incredible because I don't know what that feels like. <laughs> I agree. It's an ear test thing. Like, I think Felix has it on the forehand as well. When you hear him hit the forehand, you're just like, that's different than everyone else out here. And just, like, every ball is a green light. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's incredible to watch because every ball, he, you know, he finds a way to find every ball in a strike zone, which is, is really unique. And that's probably, you know, that enables him to play the type of tennis that he wants to play. Mm-hmm. I think it was 4-1 in the second set, like 30-15, Brandon connects on a backhand return. And Brandon's got an exceptional backhand and, you know, gets the ball pretty much at Rublev's feet on the baseline. But Rublev started his swing, timed it per- perfectly, and just slaps an inside-in forehand where that just, like, goes off the baseline. And you see the look on Brandon's face where he's like, yeah, I'm just not going to win today. Like, uh, it's okay. That's just – that's the sort of day it is. Andre can do that sort of thing. I – Sometimes think that the best comparison for Rublev might honestly be a young pre-injury Juan Martin Del Potro. Just the way they create everything with the forehand and the way the backhands are sneaky good. And I, I think the biggest credit for Rublev, when he was younger, he was not the most fluid. You know, his hips did lie a little bit. But now he's a good mover. Like, I think he's a quality athlete. Yeah, I think he's a good athlete too. And I think, I think for him it's kind of a matter of time before mm-hmm. he – Obviously, the knock is, you know, can he put himself in the conversation in the big tournaments, you know, because he's been the master of the 500s or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I, I think it's just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. No, he, he. I agree with you. And I think this week uh, I'd have to look at the scores with Schwartzman. But, I mean, he gets a title here. Absolutely on the short list of players who, I mean, with no Djokovic in the field, no Nadal in the field, no Federer first time since 2000 without any of them. It's wide open Indian Wells. And there's no reason on those courts. Did I want to say Rublev won the Indian Wells Challenger, like 2018, maybe, something like that, or made the final there. Um, There's something like it when he was on his comeback run. Um, Anyways, all that is to say, look out for Andre Rublev over the next couple of weeks. I am curious, where are you on Kasper Ruud? Because obviously he was, if Rublev's the master of the 500s, if you put Kasper Ruud in an ATP Clay 250 event, just pencil in a victory. And obviously he won three in a row over the course of this summer. I think it was a sneaky good North American hard court stretch for him. Quarterfinals in both uh, Canada and in Cincinnati. Now, of course, it wasn't the U.S. Open result he wants, but 
when I see Kasparud, I see the mortal version of Rafael Nadal. I see, like, if a human was Rafa, because obviously Rafa's not a human, it would and righty, it would look a lot like Kasparud's game. I think it's going to translate to hard courts. I just think it's a matter of sample size. Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I'm here for any social media chirping between uh, him and, and Kyrgios <laughs> and, and whoever else wants to get, <laughs> to get involved. But, yeah, I think it's a matter of time. I mean, the thing is, the surfaces now are so uh, they're so similar. There's, there's such a you know a, a convergence of the speeds. So most of these, the, you know, the U.S. Open was very fast this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from the U.S. Open, all these other hard courts are pretty slow. So I think he's going to be yeah yeah like it's it's comes down to sample size. I think he'll be in a position to play the type of tennis that he wants to play on the majority of courts, like in a normal year with a normal Indian Wells in March, like a normal Miami. Those are two super slow events. I mean, you talk about Nakapulco prior to that another super slow hard court i think it's just a matter of time mm-hmm. no I, as well it, yeah no it's really fun to watch i mean his forehand is something and he's another guy who's been you know i think he's a top 20 in both hold percentage and break percentage player he's one of seven guys you can say that about and the numbers say it the results say it uh, I agree. I, I think 2022, he's positioned himself to sustain a top 10 sort of ranking. You look at the rest of the field, obviously, it's guys like Karatsev, who I'm pretty sure this year's Indian Wells will be Aslan Karatsev's first Indian Wells main draw. And it is crazy to think just like how quickly he's acclimated himself at the top of the ATP ranks. He comes from the Challenger Tour last year, was dominant at the end of last season at the Challenger ranks, semifinals to start this year in Australia. I think it's been a pretty good follow-up for him since then. That's another guy. Love the kick serve and the way he attacks that first forehand to the deuce side. You know it's coming every time, yet it's a play that seems to work every time. Have you got the chance to see much of Karatsev? And just, again, on the ability for him to to acclimate so well to the ATP Tour, it does feel like he belongs in the top 30. Yeah, the question's always, you know, can someone back it up? But he clearly he's been able to back it up this year, which mm-hmm. is always a question mark. And you know, still sometimes I, I find myself walking behind them. I'm like, who is this guy in front of me? And then, <laughs> and then I'll, I'll I'll see who it is. But uh, you know, the, the physicality, you know, the, the ability to time the ball and and just play, uh, you know, brute force tennis. Um, yeah, is, is very good, obviously. And you know, yeah, clearly he's established himself as someone who you know has a spot, like you said, inside the top thirty. I'm 100% sure if you go to the Barnes Tennis Center on a random Sunday afternoon, you will see a pro out there who plays like Aslan Karatsev. He will fit (laughs) so well in the country club circuit with that game. It's just so smooth and, you know, all the different things he can do. And, yeah, I I agree with you. Again, he has proven he belongs up in those ranks. Uh, But that's where things stand in San Diego. Now, I did want to ask you about one of the other players we see playing this week on the ATP Tour guy you got to see up close in person in D.C., and that's 20-year-old Yannick Sinner, who's trying to defend his title in Sofia this week. And what's impressed me so much about Sinner, obviously the talent, he's another guy. Put him on the supersonic-sounding shots. When he's hitting his forehand cleanly, you're just like, what? what is that? Like, I've how do you do that? Please teach me your ways. But it's also just the fact, I feel like he just gets better at every event, Coach, whether it's the improvements with his serve, his willingness to move forward now. I think his backhand gets better and better, just the depth he can create with that shot to open up inside out, inside in forehands. What was, uh, was that your first time seeing him in person in D.C. or at least up close like that? And what would you think of, uh, of his game? Yeah, I had seen him play in person in in doubles in Atlanta. 
mm -hmm. was playing uh, with Opelka, and uh, they beat Steve and uh, Jordan Thompson in the final of Atlanta. And uh, I think Yannick didn't remember the names of uh, Jordan and Steve <laughs> after the match when he was doing his uh, <laughs> speech. He's like, hey, congratulations to uh, any turn of these guys. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, for, for me watching him play singles in, in D.C., um, the power out of the corners when he was stretched, I thought was it was like something that you rarely see. You you don't usually see somebody, especially his height, who can kind of get down like that and generate such easy power and, and depth and, you know, like the length of the ball, like preventing the opponent from attacking after they've, in theory, after they've hurt him. That, that to me, obviously, you know, a lot of guys, you know, if they get their feet set, they're going to hammer the ball and, and his pace maybe is more so than, than a lot of players. But, you know, the ability to hurt somebody when you're set up like, or when you're already, like, putting a beating on them, it's not that impressive. But the the ability to hurt people, you know, on the move, the ability to hurt people, you know, like I mentioned, for, for him, for Sinner in particular, when he was stretched into the corners, you know, defending that first ball, I, I thought was really, really impressive. I feel like he's deceptively long as an athlete. Yeah. And I, is that a fair – it just feels like he does get to that ball in the corner and – the depth. I mean, today I was watching his match. He was playing my man, the Duck, James Duckworth. Why we don't give the Duck more love? That's a discussion, I suppose, for another time. But you know, it just it's it just feels like he he's so adept at solving situations on the court. Like, okay, I say this lovingly, and I would say this to Stevie's face, even though he might yell at me, but I'd be okay with it. I mean, in two seconds, he figured out how to beat Stevie, and just. Re like just relentlessly went after backhand backhand first forehand you're gonna you know run to the opposite corner and then I'm attacking the open space he was you know to see a 19 20 year old kid execute with that sort of precision and that sort of excellence I'm all in I'm just like I'm so far in I call you know the young guys they're the usurpers and I think they're coming and it's just his game is it's it really I also think he's good at the net like he is a comfortable volleyer up there yeah, and that's you know probably the next evolution too of uh, you know, of where his game you know will go because yeah he's going to get short balls he's going to get opportunities to close out points to the net and you know as he plays you know when he plays the top top guys if he tries to play like that like he's going to have to come up with some volleys and yeah he has a little bit of a head start in that you know he's played some doubles like he obviously knows what he's doing around the net so yeah just continuing to sort of implement that you know those kind of tactics and. Just getting, you know, just getting the reps in and practice as well. Um, and then, yeah, trying to implement it when he plays singles. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, the guy is outstanding and uh, could very likely defend his title this weekend, Sophia, which obviously would be impressive for the 20-year-old to do at this point. Uh, with all that said, just a couple rapid-fire topics here for you before I let you go. Um, I am curious your thoughts and if you think this might be a trend we see emerge at other tournaments. Obviously, Indian Wells is a bit different. They... I don't, self-sustaining is kind of fine you know financially they're going to be fine if they didn't have an event this year and therefore they can play by their own rules and one of the rules they've instituted is you have to be vaccinated if you want to attend the event and what is so interesting is that players if for they are spectators yeah uh, for spectators exactly you have to be vaccinated if you want to come watch now if you want to participate in the event that's not the case and it is going to be fascinating we saw also today in australia they're mandating i believe vaccinations uh for for not for other athletes as well for you know the full-time professional i think it was the football teams that are there obviously soccer is what they're playing but uh they're going to have to be vaccinated if they want to be on one of the teams and they want to be there full-time and just the question is 
are these players going to have vaccinations? It's looming. The conflict is looming. Obviously, different players have already made their stances clear. What's your read on the situation? Wow, loaded question. Uh, yes. You know, I, I think it's I think it's coming down the pike. I don't know when it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think I think what India Wells has done. You know, listen, like I'm someone. I'm not an epidemiologist nor a virologist. I'm always someone who I think so far this you know, whatever this pandemic has been, who has erred on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. I think what, you know, I think where they've gone is, you know, probably further than I would, would have thought that anyone would have gone as far as not letting children go there for, you know, for whom the vaccine's not yet approved. So I think, I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but you know, it's their, it's their event. They can do whatever they want. And obviously legally there's, you know, there's precedent for private mm-hmm. companies to do, you know, to, to do what they want in that sense. So, yeah, I think I think it potentially is a future that we could be looking at. I think Australia, the situation, you know, will be along not along the same lines per se, but I think there are going to be, you know, different rules for players who are vaccinated and players who are unvaccinated. And I think potentially for the players who are unvaccinated, like it's going to be like the pro sports leagues are doing here. It's going to be an environment that's really challenging probably for them to deal with. So. I think uh, I think it's the reality of what we're doing. I think tennis obviously you know lags behind the other sports as far as the rate of athletes that have been vaccinated. And you know tennis always talks about that you know the players are independent contractors, and for better or for worse, like in this case, you know if you're hiring an independent contractor to come fix your plumbing, you can survey ten of them and. You can decide you don't want to hire one of them because they're unvaccinated. You, you can say, I want a vaccinated plumber to come to my house. And that's within your right as the person who's doing the hiring. So, uh, you know, unvaccinated people are not a protected class uh, in the court of law. So mm-hmm. all that being said, yeah, I think it's coming. And I think, you know, people are just going to have to deal with it, frankly. I wish we were doing this on Zoom. Then you could see the smile on, on my face that we started talking about protected classes of people. I have you right where I want you, Coach. You know that. <laughs> uh, exactly. But, uh, no, it's all fair. I, I agree with you. It is going to be fascinating. Will players elect to just skip Australia because they do not want to be in a hard bubble for however long they are down there competing if they aren't already vaccinated? And, of course, again, what this continues to expose is the lack of – Well, it's not the lack, just the difficulties in maneuvering all the various federations, the various continents, the various governments, the various laws associated with the professional tennis circuit. But it is going to be fascinating to see the decisions that come from Australia. And yeah, I mean, I I am curious for you because we talked about this at the start. I was in D.C. I know you were there as well. Crowds were pumped. You know, it it was rocking crowds. And the the stadium, the grounds, they were filled. And I'm curious, what is you, as someone who has taken this pandemic cautiously, I have as well. And, you know, for me, being in person at events is part of my livelihood. And if I get COVID, I just can't do it for a little bit of time. So I've tried to be careful. And it's my excuse for why I'm single at this point in life. All of that is to say, what have you felt about the return of crowds, about – you know, again, what is your comfort level with the ret- – because certainly it's, it's made the environment that much more enjoyable. But if it's going to impact athletes, obviously that's a problem. Well, the, having the crowds back has been incredible, first and foremost. I mean, D.C. was unbelievable, especially to us because it was the first time that we were at an event that was uh, not a bubble because mm-hmm. Wimbledon – Wimbledon was a, you know, it was a freaking bubble for us. We couldn't go anywhere except the club and the hotel and 
you know, my hotel room, like I didn't have natural light for the time I was there. It sucked. Um, so anyway, you know, but yeah, like England made it happen. Like they made Wimbledon happen, which is great. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I was over being in bubbles and I think there are people that will not do a bubble again, period. Um, the crowds getting back to your question have been awesome, but my, as, as a coach, I sit in the stands and there were times this year when, yeah, I guess this summer when maybe I was a little bit uncomfortable with how close people were sitting next to me, but <laughs> I, I felt the same way, to be honest, prior to the pandemic. I didn't want people sitting next to me that I didn't know, period. You know? <laughs> so, um, you know, I, so I, I tried to find places in the stands, you know, if Steve was playing on a smaller court or whatever, or like a, you know, a bleacher type court where people wouldn't sit next to me and where I could have some space. And there were times when, you know, I wanted to wear a mask and I did. And there were times when I felt I was away from people and didn't wear a mask and it was fine. And, at the U.S. Open this year, it made me really much more comfortable when they put the vaccine uh, mandate for spectators in place, just because I felt, you know, an extra layer of protection as someone who's going to sit in the stands. And, you know, people say, obviously, like, yeah, you're vaccinated. Like, what do you care? Like, you know, viruses are just math. And the way viruses <laughs> spread, it, you know, it's just math. And so if you're, you know, you're telling me I'm going to be surrounded by, you know, however many thousands of people who are all vaccinated, like, I feel much more comfortable than not knowing, you know, where these people are coming from, period. So, uh, you know, and then and then on the, the converse of that is, you know, being around athletes who maybe half of them are vaccinated or maybe slightly more than half, you know, do I feel safe around them? Generally, yeah, because they're tested every other day or every two days, whatever it is, much more than the random fan who shows up to watch a tournament. And I don't know, you know, like I said, they don't have the history of being tested with the same frequency and they don't, you know, I guess I have no idea where they're coming from. So, um, all that being said, uh, I have gotten to the point too, where I'm pretty comfortable, um, being in the stands. And if I walk through a big crowd, like on my way to a court, like at the, at the open, like I wore my mask pretty much every time. Um, I wore my mask, you know, inside cause I was the rule, like up to the booth, that was the rule. And, uh, overall, like I felt, I felt pretty good because in New York, there's a really good vaccination rate as well. And, you know, in the South, like some of the tournaments, maybe they don't have the same numbers, but you know, I just try to be relatively uh vigilant and yeah like i don't want to get stuck someplace for 10 days with you know my family at home when i could be there you know so that's for me you know i'm not worried necessarily about my own health but you know other people and then yeah like being stuck away from my family in some crappy hotel room like sounds like a terrible idea yeah <laughs> i it does sound like you'd have more time to podcast though and so <laughs> yeah, you know, there, yeah. Would, there might be a silver that we'd probably get 10 straight days of check the mark um, which you know, I don't think anyone would mind. But no, I, I think that's totally fair. And I, to your point, and there's a nugget there that I am going to latch on to because I've heard similar things. There are players who just do not want to go back to bubbles. Who would just say, "I'm not doing that. Like I am not subjecting myself." And obviously, depending on your ranking, that'll certainly help your leniency and where you are in your career of saying, "Well, I don't really have a choice." Versus, "Well, I kind of do have a choice, and I just don't want to play those events." But there are, I mean, you do hear that sentiment. I, I, I feel like it has been repeated multiple times. Yeah, it's it's no secret. I mean, it was really, really challenging for a number of players mentally. I, I think that's you know one of the reasons like that the tennis was really up and down. But yeah, I, I think there's very, very limited appetite for going through some of those things again. Um, Australia, yeah. you know, clearly has had a challenge as a country in dealing with the COVID. Like they kind of chose a strategy that with hindsight being 2020 is totally unsustainable and you know they're making a change now and they're trying to obviously do a better job rolling out the vaccine uh, program than they did before and yeah and it's just going to be you know time will tell how effective it is and, and time will tell obviously as we get closer to the end of the year 
what you know an Australian Open will look like in 2022. No, think about the Barty, the Millmans, the Demon Hours of the world who haven't been home in months because they just they can't. They're, if they go home, they you lose essentially a month of time, and they, you just can't afford to do that in the professional tennis calendar. And so, yeah, it, it's again, it sucks that we have to continue to have these conversations. But I always appreciate your candidness regarding them. Uh, any final question for you? Any things you are most looking forward to? I assume Stevie it will. If not, I saw some of the. He's got to be in qualifying at a minimum for Indian Wells. Uh, he's in the main draw. Thanks. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, I said minimum. I said minimum. <laughs> I said minimum. Um, but yeah, yeah, you got to be excited to get back out there. Oh yeah, I mean it's been. I went out there the this summer. We went out for a little weekend or a little week trip out to the desert, which it's one of my favorite places. I mean, I've been going there since I was a kid, and looking forward to get out there playing some golf. Got a couple of Mexican spots that I always like to hit up, and uh, yeah, just the mornings in the desert are incredible for anyone who's gone there. They know just how quiet it is, how still in the mornings, and the uh, you know it's just always so clear. And it's just for me, it's one of my special places that I like to go. Does Stevie have the best kick serve on tour in your eyes? <laughs> uh, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I think there's a lot of great kick serves out there. This <laughs> uh, <laughs> is one. Obviously, you mentioned Hoffman. Um, you know, uh, Madison Keys, I think, puts herself in the conversation. Shelby uh, Rogers puts herself in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, those are you can't all be such. You can't be so single gender focused, Alex. Yeah, it's fair. That's fair. You know, I, it's all good points. There are a lot of good kick serves out there. I don't discriminate. Sam Stozer. Yeah, it's a nice kick serve. I don't hate Krejcikova's either. Um, I mean, there's, again, as you mentioned, a lot of good. It's all in the eye of the beholder. What's the kick serve for you? Um, but no, there's, uh, again, it's, I'll tell you who it's not. It's not Riley Opelka. Um, but all of that is to say it should be a really fun event in Indian Wells. And obviously looking forward to seeing, uh, I'm sure we're going to get it. Are you going to be in the commentary booth at all? I will not. I will be there in a coaching capacity only and a golfing capacity only. <laughs> Which I'm sure is preferred. Well, the problem is you're not going to get much golf when Stevie's in the final of the event. So I true, that's true. I, I, I'm trying to think because he true. enters with what? A six-match win streak at Indian Wells? Uh, yeah, he was the last person to win a match at the Indian Wells Tennis Garden. So we're looking forward to riding that momentum, baby. Let's go. <laughs> People don't talk enough about his win over Jack Sock in that 2020 final right before things ended. Um, that was yeah, a great, were you there? Were you there for that? In spirit. Did you watch it? I was on the stream. I'm pretty sure we were texting during it, and we were talking about the pandemic, and you were like, yeah, I think Indian Wells is going to get canceled. And I was like, really? And then you were like, yeah, it's about to get canceled. And then I'm pretty sure I heard it was canceled and texted you, and you were like, no. And I was like, no, I think so. I'll, I'll, I'll check the DMs. I'll check the DMs. But um, Yeah, no. I, I generally don't text during matches. I generally don't have my phone during matches. But maybe with uh, you know, with a looming pandemic, it might have been a special occasion. Yeah, I, I, it was more the time period. I'm not saying you were texting me four, five, and the third, like, you're not going to Okay, yeah, I just yeah. wanted to make that clear for the listeners. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, he was, uh, never mind. I was going to make a joke, but I'm not going to make it. Um, but you can think what I was going to say. Um, yeah, no, of course, uh, again, beyond even the text, because I do pester you from time to time. It's it just, is, uh, it's so funny to think about, you know, how far we've come and how much we've learned about the virus. I mean, I think, you know, I think back to that, that weekend of the semis and finals at that tournament and, you know, the semis, the ball could show up wearing, you know, plastic gloves. And obviously now, you know, now we know, we know, you know, how the virus you know is transmitted is particularly, it just is so much more, you know, it's how it's not, you know, not transmitted over surfaces and how, you know, gloves are essentially, 
you know, worthless. And uh, it's it's just it's so funny to look back and think about those things. You know? Yeah. No, it's incredible. Did he play Nakashima in the semis of that event? I feel like he did play Brandon at some point. Uh, no, I believe it was, gosh, was it Mitchell Kruger in the semis? And then, yeah, that's uh, who it was. Yeah, and Mitchell might, did Mitchell beat, uh, did Mitchell beat Brandon? I don't know. Someone beat Brandon. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then, and, um, yeah, so it was Mitchell Jack. And I think Noah Rubin in the round before that. Yeah. Oh, that was a lifetime ago. Literally a it lifetime. It was a lifetime ago. Yeah, it sure it's was. A, it's incredible <laughs> to think about. And yet, the progression continues. It, it's Stevie's been rocking and rolling. Uh, life carries on the ATP Tour uh, and the WTA Tour. But obviously, we always appreciate the chance here at Crack Rackets to get the chance to chat with you, Coach. And as I mentioned, the fantastically named Check the Mark podcast, which I know you are producing from time to time, is one platform where people can hear from you. What else can they expect from you over the next few weeks? couple pods from Indian Wells? I want to try to do one from Indian Wells next week in the lead up in those early days, uh, the practice days. Uh, I think people should check the Instagram periodically at Mark Lucero. I'm putting some tennis stuff on there, some some tips and some of my thoughts related to player development and that sort of thing. Not UFTA player development, but the development of players. And uh, yeah, and then uh, Twitter once in a while, same thing at Mark Lucero. So check it out. Hit me up. Tell a friend. Yeah, of course, as always, and enjoy a burrito for me, Coach, while you are out there. I'm sure that you – I don't have to tell you that, but it is always a pleasure to get the chance to chat, be safe, be healthy, and I'm sure we'll chat more soon. Yeah, and I'm going to keep you honest. When you put out brutal takes on Twitter, I'm going to call you out. <laughs> What's the – you don't like that Novak Djokovic is Aaron Rodgers? <laughs> I can't remember. The There was one that I, I think I replied recently, but uh, <laughs> generally, generally the quality is high, but – Sometimes when you do your your little your troll job, uh, I gotta let you know. <laughs> good, that's the point. That's good. Oh, when Jeff Sackman accused me of having a brand, I've never been prouder. I was like, "Let's go, I've made it." Uh, but no, always a pleasure to get the chance to chat with you, uh, Coach. And I'm sure we will talk more soon. Thanks, Alex. Yep. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Coach Mark Lucero. Of course, always appreciate him taking the time to chat with us. Sincerely, if you're not, go listen to Check the Mark. It will make you smarter as a tennis fan. And, of course, we will certainly have Mark on the podcast more in the future. Of course, if you missed any of our other conversations this week, talked Challenger Tennis with Damian Kust on the Great Shot podcast, talked Laver Cup with Steve Weissman. We've been recapping all the action day in, day out here on the Mini Break podcast. But for those conversations, conversations hop on over to our great shot podcast feed from the presser segment for all of you listeners from San Diego as well having a little difficult getting the video from the San Diego press team I know that just communications issues happen it's as much my fault as anything so again apologies for the lack of those I have been in those press rooms going to try and work those insights into today's mini uh into excuse me tomorrow's mini break podcast work those quotes in as well as soon as we get our hands and the audio clips on them so be on the lookout for that but of course like rate subscribe review to all of our podcasts this one the great shot podcast correct 
Racket Interviews podcast, our Crack Rackets YouTube channel as well, where we are talking the history of WTA teenage success this week. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. A shout out as always to our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that set, for super producers Fligner and Westoff, our fantastic guest Mark Lucero, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.